sitting in the courthouse library, he looked up from the table and scanned across the bookcases. On the far side, a window sat behind one of these bookcases. He looked behind him, he could see the police officer guarding the door, wouldn't have a clear view of him if he made it to the window quick enough. He played the plan over and over in his mind. Eventually, clearing his throat, he stood up from the table and walked to the first bookcase, appearing to search through the books. Edging to the back of the bookcase, he glimpsed up the officer, who stood tall at the door. He moved to the next bookcase, the officer didn't move. Keeping the momentum, he went to the next and the next until he got to the window. Opening it ever so slowly and quietly, he made a gap big enough to squeeze himself through. Fearing the guard was coming, he jumped, landing on his ankle. The surge of pain shockwaved through his body. He didn't yell out, he kept calm and cool. Taking off a layer of clothing, he limped to the pathway and walked amongst the innocent. His name was Ted Bundy. And this is the good, the bad, and the pure evil. We all, or most of us, know the story. A charming, polite, well-groomed, well-spoken man who turned out to be the scariest monster to walk on the earth. I did the video thinking I know the story. Most notorious serial killer killed a lot of people. But my God, he killed a lot more than I thought. And far more frequent. I mean, it was crazy. His crimes were horrific. He took the light in people's pain and would become your fork from the power and control he held over his victims, even after death. He would once describe himself as the most cold-hearted SOB you'll ever meet. This is the story of Theodore Robert Bundy and viewer discretion is strongly advised. Born Theodore Robert Cowell on November 24, 1946 to Eleanor Louise Cowell at a home for unwed mothers named Elizabeth Lund Home. From the sentence above, it's probably a given, but in its case it's not. Ted's father wasn't about and wasn't confirmed, but there was theories. A salesman who was an Air Force vet named Lloyd Marshall was one of these theories, which was based on Ted's birth cert, although some have said under the father section, it states unknown. Louise claims there was a man named Jack Wartington Again, a war vet, but he bolted when he heard that she was pregnant. Within the extended family, though, the theory was always that Ted's father was actually his grandfather, Samuel Cowell. So a lot of unknown for the start of little Teddy's life. Until three, he lived in Philadelphia. His grandparents decided it was best to raise him as their son. They didn't want the reputation of having an unwed mother as a daughter. So Ted grew up believing that they were his parents and his mother was his older sister. Years later, he would find out himself when he located his original birth cert. Although there is an account that a cousin told him after teasing him about being a bastard. There's a lot of this in this video, a lot of accounts, a lot of stories, so it's very hard to know which are true and which aren't. Either way, he did find out and he was very unhappy about it which you can't blame him really. All he ever knew was now found out to be a complete lie. He did question his mother when he found out, but got nowhere with answers. He became so angry and resented towards his true mother from then on. As for his grandparents, accounts and stories differ, so it depends what you believe to be true. Some say Ted identified with his grandparents, respected them, even clung to them, particularly his grandfather. 
But in 1987, Ted and family members gave very different stories. Samuel Cowell, Ted's grandfather, was described as a bully, a bigot who hated blacks, Italians, Catholics, Jews, and many, many more. The list of who he liked would probably be easier to sound off. Samuel battered his wife and family dog. He would swing cats by their tails, and God knows what else. To his own children, he was violent, a dictator. He once threw Julia, Louise's younger sister, and Ted's aunt down a flight of stairs because she slept in. He also was odd, like mentally odd. He would go about talking to the air. There's a saying, you can talk to yourself once you don't answer yourself, but he did that too. So you know, it was a little concerning. When or if questions were raised about Ted's biological parents, he would fly into fits of rages. Ted's grandmother, on the other hand, was completely the opposite. She was quiet and shy, who did what she was told when she was told. She suffered with depression and is known to have electroconvulsion therapy for this. Towards the end of her life, Ted's grandmother became a recluse. As for Ted, he showed strange and odd behaviours from a very young child. A story from an aunt would send chills down your spine. This aunt was having a nap. When she woke up, she was surrounded by knives, all of which were pointed in towards her. Obviously a bit concerning, and when she looked up, three-year-old little Ted was just standing there with a smile on his face, which is a bit creepy. So in 1950, Louise changed her name to Nelson. She then left Philadelphia, taking Ted with her to go stay in Tacoma with cousins. In 1951, she decided to get out and meet more people. She attended a singles night at a local church and this is where she met Johnny Bundy. They went out for about a year and then they got married. Johnny seemed like a good guy. He wanted to have a united family and cared deeply for his head. So he formally adopted him once they became married. Adding to this new formed family, they had four more children and Johnny made a real effort to include Ted Although not blood, he really did find Ted as his own blood. He wanted Ted to know and feel this, so camping trips were organised and family activities. But Ted didn't have the Brady Bunch vibes his stepfather had. Years later, an ex-girlfriend would recall Ted making it very, very clear Johnny was not his father. He would often make fun of Johnny's intelligence and ridicule his low income. Regarding his time at Tacoma really depended on the mood you got Ted in. Stories were told of him out at night, rambling in the streets, searching in bins for lewd pictures of women. Another one of his tales has, has him searching for magazines relating to police, crime or violence. Later, when this would be questioned, he would become disgusted and angered at the thought he was suggested of doing such things. Maybe to give reason for the above, he gave another story about heavily drinking at night time followed by the roaming of the community for open curtains to observe women getting undressed. His social life stories again flip-flopped depending on who you spoke to and what mood Ted was in. Ted told someone about wanting and accepting to be alone. He didn't understand relationships and so couldn't create bonds. However, schoolmates had him as popular. They're not a big popular, but popular enough that he was well-liked. He wasn't a saint by any means and like most teenagers rebelled, he was arrested twice for robbery of cars. These were removed from his records once he turned 18. So in 1965, he graduated. First, he went to the University of Puget Sound, but moved after one year to the University of Washington, where he decided to study Chinese, which is a bit strange, but I'm sure he had his reason for it. 
1967, he met and started dating a classmate. He gives her many names, but when speaking years later, the most common is Stephanie Brooks. So we'll stick with that name. In 68, college wasn't working for him, and I guess Chinese wasn't what he thought it would be, so he dropped out. After that, he went on a string of low-end jobs. He would also volunteer at the Nelson Rockefeller's presidential campaign. While volunteering here, he became a driver and somewhat of a bodyguard for Arthur Fletcher, who was campaigning for Lieutenant Governor of Washington. In August of that year, Bundy travelled to Miami to attend the Republican National Conventions as a Rockefeller delegate. While away, Brooks had time to reflect on the relationship and she felt like Bundy wasn't going anywhere. He was stalled in life. So when Bundy returned, she ended the relationship quite abruptly and went back to California to be with her family. That event, that moment in time would devastate Bundy and would later be suggested by psychiatrists as a pivotal moment in Bundy's development. Heartbroken, he left and went to Colorado first, then on to relatives in Arkansas and next Philadelphia. While getting away, he's believed to have attended one semester at Temple University. This is also the time it's believed that Bundy went to Burlington to check his birth cert and find out his real identity causing even more heartache and even more anger. Eventually he went back to Washington in 1969 and this is where he met his new love for interest, Elizabeth Clover. Again, depending on what you read, she goes by many names, Meg Andrews, Beth Archer or Liz Cadell. Bundy came with his own baggage, his false childhood, failed relationships, failed schooling and Liz also came with it being a divorcee. She worked as the secretary at the University of Washington in the School of Medicine. Their relationship was very temperamental and volatile, filled with ups and downs and constantly on and off. Around mid-1970, Bundy again changed direction. He enrolled in the University of Washington, this time to study psychology. He did very well and even his professors spoke highly of him. He landed a job in 71 at the Suicide Crisis Hotline in Seattle. Here is where he met a co-worker and would become a real true friend, Anne Rule. Anne would later go on to write true crime books, including one about Bundy called The Stranger Beside Me. She was also an ex-cop back in 1970 and would remark seeing nothing concerning about Bundy, even saying he came across as kind and apathetic while working. His Hyde, his Hyde persona was very convincing even back then. Anyway, in 72 he graduated and joined another campaign for the re-election of Governor Daniel J. Evans. Ted took it upon himself to sneak over to the opponent's camp incognito as a student to gather information on the opponent. This impressed Evans and he appointed Bundy to the Seattle Crime Prevention Advisory Committee. Evans won and was pleased with Bundy's performance and recommended him to Ross Davis, who was chairman of the Washington State Republican Party. Davis hired Bundy to assist him. He found Bundy smart, aggressive, determined and a true believer of the system. With a law interest sparked, Bundy sat the LSATs. His score wasn't great, but thanks to the encouraging letters from Evans, Davis and professors at the University of Washington, he was accepted into law schools. Summer of 73, while on school break, Bundy kept up his political interests and attended a Republican Party event in California. While here, who did he happen to bump into? His old flame, Stephanie Brooks, 
The once unworthy of her and unmature Bundy was now very enticing to her. Bundy and Brooke sparked the romance up again, although Ted stayed involved with Clover. Bundy kept both women a secret from one another. In autumn 73, Bundy entered Seattle Law School, keeping the relationship going. Brooks would often make most effort flying up to him, visiting him many times. Things moved fast and marriage was spoken about, and Bundy even started to introduce Brooks as his fiancée. Christmas came and went and it was all perfect, but in January 74, Bundy stopped all contact with Brooks with no warning or reason whatsoever. Phone call after phone call after phone call Bundy ignored. Letter after letter after letter he dumped until one day, about one month later, he answered the phone. Frantic and erratic, Brooks demanded answers. Bundy cleared his throat and calmly, with no emotions, replied, Stephanie, I have no idea what you mean. And he hung up the phone, making it all seem like Brooks was pure crazy. They never spoke again, and years later, Bundy admitted he intentionally planned the whole entire thing. The so, so happened meetup, luring her back into romantically, suggesting a future, all to dub her in revenge for dumping him in 1967. This guy really held a grudge. This revenge, the building of a story, it took a lot of time and focus, so school attendance took a dive. Even after his revenge was served, the school skipping continued, and in April, he just gave up completely. Maybe coincidental, but around that time, young women began to vanish in the Pacific Northwest. No one is sure when or where, even where Ted started to kill. There's many, many stories and many theories out there. Not even Bundy himself is clear with the details. The stories really depend on who he spoke to and when he spoke to them. His early crimes he kept mostly secret, even when he was confessing to so many in the days leading up to his execution. But he did tell about some, although again, they vary. To his bag for, he spoke about an attempt of kidnapping in 1969 in New Jersey, but didn't murder until 1971 while in Seattle. But to the arch, to Art Norman, the psychologist, he gave a detailed account about murdering two women in 1969 in Atlantic City. Years later, homicide detective Robert Keppel would sit down with Bundy. Bundy would speak about murders he committed, but refused to give concrete details, never elaborating, almost teasing the detective. Now, Bestie Anne Rule from the Crisis Centre and Detective Keppel firmly believe Bundy killed during his teens. In 1961, Tacoma, a child, Anne Byrne, was taken and killed. Ted would have been 14 and living in the area, but always denied any connection with it, never ever admitting to it. The earliest documented homicide of Bundy's was in 1974 when he was 27. Bundy would remark by that age he had mastered the skills he needed. At that time, DNA profiling wasn't about. But looking then to now, Bundy still would have managed to leave little if any evidence he was that detailed aware. So let's go back to New Year 1974. Bundy was ignoring Brooks and he was waiting to end the relationship. On a cold January fortnight, Bundy broke into the basement apartment around midnight. 18 year old Karen Sparks lived in this basement apartment. She was a dancer and a student at the University of Washington. As always, Ted renamed Karen depending on who he spoke to. So the story that you might read, she could be known as Joni Lenz, Mary Adams, or Terry Caldwell. 
Karen was home when Bundy broke in. In the dark of the night, Bundy took a metal object believed to be from the bed frame and battered Karen and sexually assaulted her with it. Injuries were unimaginable. She was hospitalized and unconscious for 10 days, but she did survive. From the attack, she was left with permanent physical and mental disabilities. Less than a month later, on February 1st, Bundy broke into another basement room, this time belonging to Linda Ann Healy. She was an undergrad at the University of Washington. Bundy again battered her until she blacked out, but he didn't leave her this time. Instead, he dressed her in jeans, a blouse and boots, carrying her away, never to be seen again. Female college students were vanishing left and right during the first half of 1974, with at least one a month. March 12th again, just a month on from Linda, Donna Mason, who was 19, was a student at the Evergreen State College. She went to a jazz concert and never came back. April 17th, Susan Rancourt left an advisory meeting at Central Washington State College. She was heading back to her dorm and just vanished, never seen again. After Lee's disappearance, two female students came forward to report strange encounters that sat uneasy with them. Of these reports, one happened the night of Rancourt's disappearance and the other three nights before. The reports were of a man appearing injured with his arm in a sling. He was struggling carrying items and was asking for help to his car, a brown or tan VW Beetle. Now the two girls didn't help him because of the uneasy feeling. Another month passed and May 6th, Roberta Parks, another student, left the dorm to meet friends for coffee. Roberta was never seen again and never made it to the cafe. Although hundreds of miles apart, police of King County and Seattle were growing concerned with how often this disappearance was happening. They had no evidence that the women had anything in common apart from being young, white, attractive and had long hair. June 1st, 22-year-old Brenda Ball came out of the Flame Tavern which was near the International Airport. She was last seen in the car park of the, ta of the tavern speaking to a man a man with dark hair and his arm in a sling. Ten days later, June 11th, Georgina Hawkins was walking down a well-lit alley. She never came out the, of the alley at the other side. The police were alerted the next morning and three Seattle homicide detectives searched the entire alley thoroughly with no stone unturned. Bundy would later tell Detective Keppel about it. He lured, how he lured Hawkins to his car taking a crowbar, knocking her out. He then handcuffed her and drove her to a sequa. Here is where he strangled her, then spent the night with her corpse. The next morning, he drove back to the alley. Now, the alley was corded off and police were swarming the place, but Bundy wasn't heading there. He was heading to the car park next to it. In the car park, he retrieved the items of Hawkins he had left, such as an earring and shoes. He did this completely unnoticed. He told Kelpel that he had visited Hawkins' corpse three more times since her death. So Hawkins' disappearance made the news and triggered memories of witnesses who then came forward with reports of a man acting strangely in the alley near the dormitory that night. This man appeared injured with a broken leg and crutches. He appeared to be fumbling with a briefcase. A woman reported he used this to engage with others, asking for help to his car, again to report it as a light brown BW Beetle. 
While these women were vanishing, Bundy was working as an assistant director of Seattle Crime Prevention Advisory Committee. Yeah, you heard that right. He would go on to write and got leaflets out distri distributing, advising women how to avoid and prevent rape. Bundy would go on to work at the Department of the Emergency Services, DES, which was involved in the search for the missing ladies. It was here at DES that he met Carol Boone. She had two failed marriages and two children. Carol and Bundy became romantically involved and she would become important during Bundy's final stages of life, which I'll get to later. The media in Washington and Oregon was dominated with the missing women and sparks beating and assault at her home. Young women were scared. Pressure was mounting for the police to act, but with little or no evidence, the case progressed soon stalled. Reporters wanted to help, but police had such little info they felt letting it out would compromise the investigations. But similarities started to appear. The women that were going missing at night were near construction sites, around exam times like midterms or finals. They wore slacks or jeans, and nearly at all scenes, a man was seen appearing injured with a slung arm or casted leg with a connection with a brown or tan BW Beetle. On July 14th, the disappearance went into overdrive. On this day, in broad daylight, two women went missing from a crowded beach in Isiqua. On this day, five other women would report close calls. These women witnessed a young, attractive man in a white tennis gear with his arm in a sling. He spoke with a slight accent, some describing as Canadian, while others said it was British. He introduced himself as Ted. No shame with this guy. And he was looking for help to unload a sailboat off his VW Beetle, which again the women said was tan or bronze in colour. Now, of the five, four straight away had a feeling and were, or were otherwise busy, so said no. But one did say yes to helping him. As she approached the VW, she couldn't see the sailboat. Fear swept over her and she would turn and run away. However, two women weren't so lucky. Witnesses seen a similar man with 23-year-old Janice Ott. She was a probation work caseworker and was last seen with this guy walking towards the car park. Hours later, a computer programmer, student Denise Naslund, was at the picnic. At some stage, she had to use the bathroom. So off she went, but she never returned to the picnic. Years later, speaking to his biographer, Bundy spoke of taking Janice first, doing what he did, and leaving her for dead. But when he returned with the niece, Janice was still alive. Adding to his sick twist away, he forced one to watch as he tortured and killed the other, and then turned on them. The story of making them watch isn't known as true because he would deny it to his psychologist the night before his execution. With a detailed description of the man and his car, the King County Police posted a leaflet around Seattle. As the sketch was also printed in the local newspapers and shown locally on TV. Now Bundy, his on-off lover, Clover, his crisis centre buddy, Rule, and his DES co-worker and University of Washington professors all seen the sketch and all called in to say that that could be Bundy. Looking at the sketch, yes of course it could be Bundy, 
but detectives were inundated with phone calls ringing off the hook with over 200 tips a day. With such pressure, they had to be very particular looking into them. With Bundy being so clean cut, a law student with no previous records that they were aware of, they thought he couldn't be the man a rule to make. On September 6th, two hunters were out for Grice, hunting grouse. Uh, they found a skeletal remains of Ott and Nazald. There was also extra bones with them that Bundy would later say was Hawkins. Six months after this find, a group of students for forestry were up on Taylor Mountain. They were on a hiking trail used by many, many people, including Bundy. Here they found skulls and bowls of Healy, Rancor, Parks and Ball, but the remains of Mason would be never found. So August 74, Bundy got accepted to study at the University of Utah Law School, and for convenience he moved to Salt Lake City, leaving Clover in Seattle. Although he would keep their relationship going, he would also see others while in Salt Lake City. Attempting the first year of law again, he became frustrated. He watched as other students understood what was being taught much, much easier than him and were picking up much quicker. A month later, a string of killings began. Two of them wouldn't be discovered until days before Bundy's execution. September 2nd, a hitchhiker who was never named was strangled and raped in Idaho. It was not known if the remains were disposed that day or the next day. On October 2nd, 16-year-old Nancy Wilcox was kidnapped in Holiday. She would never be found, but is believed to be buried near Capitol Reef National Park. Next was October 18th. While leaving a pizza parlor in Midvale, 17-year-old Melissa Smith, who was the police officer's daughter, vanished. A search party was discovered, a search party was organized and nine days later, sadly though, her body was discovered. Her post-mortem showed signs that she lived for several days after abduction. Halloween night, 17-year-old Laura Amy was leaving a cafe at about midnight and was never seen again. Her body would be discovered by hikers in American Fork Canyon on Thanksgiving. Both of these poor souls were beaten, raped, assaulted, and finally strangled with nylon stockings. When interviewed later, Bundy would share his death with Richards and would use Smith and Amy as examples. He'd wash them, shampoo their hair, and even apply makeup to them. On the afternoon of November 8th, 18-year-old Carol DeRanche was approached by Bundy who claimed he was a policeman of the Murray Police Department. He told DeRanche that someone had attempted to break into her car and she had to come with him to the station to file a report. While driving, the ranch noticed that they were going the wrong way. And when she pointed this out to Bundy, he pulled over and tried to handcuff her. There was a struggle and Bundy handcuffed both wrist rings to just one hand, making it so a hand was free. Woohoo! So with this free hand, she opened the door and she ran. She would obviously go to the authorities. Hours later, 17-year-old Deborah Kent would be leaving theatre production at the View Mount High School. She was never seen again. Police came and witnesses spoke of a strange man. He was seen at the back of the auditorium, pacing back and forth, and the drama teacher also seen him nearing the end of the play. So the police took these statements and searched outside. They found a key. Taking the key back to the station, it was found to unlock the handcuffs that were on the Roach's wrists earlier. So while this is going on, Kofler, Bundy's on and off lover remained back home. 
Now in November, she heard about the Salt Lake City disappearance of women. These disappearances didn't sit well with Clover and she felt off about it. So she contacted the King County Police and was called in for an interview with Detective Hergersheimer of major crimes. At this time, Bundy's name was fast moving up the suspect list. They did have what they thought was a solid eyewitness from Lake Samasish, but when shown a photo lineup, she couldn't pick Bundy out. In December, Clover called again, emphasizing her concerns. This time, they added Bundy's name to the suspect list, but no forensic evidence tied into the Utah crimes. January 1975, once his final exams were over, he went back to Seattle for a week shack up with Clover, but she kept the reports and interviews secret from him. In 75, Bundy decided to change his location for his crimes to Colorado. January 12th, Karen Campbell, a 23-year-old nurse, was walking. Wait till you hear this. She was walking down a hall from the elevator to her room. The hallway was well lit, no issues, but she went missing in that hallway. Just gone. Her naked body would be found a month later just outside her place on a dirt road. She died from blows to the head and her body had deep cuts and bruises. March 15th, 26-year-old ski instructor Julia Cunningham left her apartment to go for dinner. She never made it to that dinner. Bundy would later tell the Colorado investigators that he hobbled over to Julie on his crutches, asking for her help carrying ski items to his car. At his car, Bundy bet her with his crutches, handcuffed her, assaulted her, and then strangled her. Weeks after killing her, he would drive six hours to revisit her remains. On April 6, 25-year-old Denise Oliverson took her bike out and cycled to her parents' house. She never made it to her parents' house. Her body was never found, but her bike and sandals were found near a railroad bridge. On May 6th, 12-year-old Dawn Culliver was lured by Bundy from her, her school to a hotel. Here he assaulted her, drowned her, and then dumped her body in a river to make it look like an accidental drowning. In the same month, Bundy had visitors, friends from DES, including his new love interest, Carol Boone. They stayed for about a week, and then a week in June, Bundy went and spent it with his other lover, Clover. Clover still never mentioned the police interviews, and Bundy kept his new love interest, Boone, a secret from Clover. There was also a third lover with a law student that neither of women were aware of. June 28th, Susan Curtis attended Brigham Young University for the day, but she was never seen again. Her murder would be the very last Bundy confessed to on record before entering the execution chamber. Wilcox, Kent, Cunningham, Oliverson, Culver and Curtis's bodies were never ever found. In the August of September 1975, Bundy randomly was baptised into the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Which was odd because as a churchgoer he basically never went and he completely ignored their teachings. So I don't see why he would have been in their church. But the only reason it's known was because in 1976, with kidnapping convictions, this church would come out and dump Bundy publicly. Bundy would never admit to being part of the church. He always claimed to be Methodist, so it was a bit odd for him to be associated with them. Back in Washington State, the investigators were stalled for the murder sprees ending as quick as they started. They had a lot of data record recorded and way too much to sift through. 
so decided to create a database of all this gathered information, which was a very new for the time. With such new idea, they weren't given new technology. Instead, they were given a cinder block of an old payroll computer. Painfully slowly, they entered the list of suspects, classmates and friends of each victim. They entered VW Beetle owners with the name Ted, they entered sex offenders and on and on and on. From thousands and thousands of names, 26 commonly turned up on four lists. One of the names was Ted Bundy. A top 100 list best connected was made again, there was Ted Bundy. Another list and again, there's Ted Bundy. And again, and again, and again. List after list, Ted Bundy always made it. And then out of nowhere, Bundy was arrested in Utah. August 16, 1975, in the early hours of the morning, Bundy was driving slowly through a residential area, seeking his next victim. At the corner of his eye, he seen a patrol car. Pedal to the metal, he sped up, with the patrol car hot on his tail. Eventually, he pulled over. The patrol officer walked up to the driver window. Bundy tried, as usual, to talk his way out of it, but as he was talking, the patrol officer no noticed the passenger seat on the rear seats. Feeling odd about this, he asked Bundy to step out. He researched the car and he found a ski mask, pantyhose mask, crowbar, handcuffs, rope, ice pick and tools for burglary. Bundy tried to say he found him in a dumpster, but the detectives remembered the car and suspect info on the ranch kidnapping and felt Bundy fit that description. So he decided to get a search warrant on his apartment. In the apartment, they found guides to Colorado ski resorts, brochures of high schools, and leaflets about a school play, all connected to disappearances, but not enough to detain, so he was released. Later, Bundy would mock the detective search, being so close to finding Polaroids of his victims, but not finding them and letting him go instead. Once released, Bundy destroyed all of these Polaroids. Not to be made fools of, Salt Lake City Police placed Bundy on 24-hour surveillance. Investigator Jerry Thompson of Utah flew to Seattle with two others to speak and interview Clover. She had a wealth of info about Bundy. She spoke about him having crutches, plaster paris, a meat cleaver, surgical gloves and a sack of women clothing. She was convinced he was stony broke, so anything he had, he stole. She once asked about a new item such as a TV and he flew into a rage, threatening her that if, he ever, if she ever spoke to anyone about it, he'd break her neck. She went on to say that Bundy was always wanted her to have her hair long and she was never allowed to cut it. She also had to have a style in a particular way. She also spoke about waking up at night to find Bundy under the covers with a flashlight examining her body. She said Bundy kept a lug wrench. To me, it's like a socket wrench for wheel nuts. Anyway, he had one of these with, which was taped halfway up and usually was stored in Liz's car, which by the way, was a VW Beetle too. Bundy would borrow Liz's car from time to time and would claim that the wrench was used for protection. Going through dates and times, the detectives found that Bundy wasn't with Liz on the night of the Pacific Northwest victims, or the day when Ott and Naslo were kidnapped. While these interviews were being done, Liz spoke to a female detective 
and this is when Liz was told all about Stephanie Brooks, the engagement to Bundy at Christmas 1973. Basically everything about that side affair and the revenge. Now in September, Ted being under surveillance did a, bit, a little bit of a whoopsie. He sold the VW Beetle. Now Utah police immediately impounded the car after the sale and got the FBI to strip the car down, breaking it down to pieces to examine it all in detail. They found three sets of hairs that weren't Bundy's. These three matched Carolyn, Karen Campbell, Melissa Smith and Carol DeRanche. October 2nd, Bundy stood in a lineup and DeRanche was able to identify him as the officer who decided he told her that her car was being robbed. And the witnesses at school also identified him as the man acting oddly. They could only charge him with aggravated kidnapping of the ranch and his bail set at $15,000, which his mommy and his daddy paid. In November, investigators Jerry Thompson, Utah, Robert Cabell, Washington, and Michael Fisher, Colorado, all met in Aspen to talk about the info they had gathered. 30 detectives and prosecutors from five different states also attended this meeting. When they left, they were convinced Bundy was their guy, but they needed more to convict of murder. February 76, the ranch's trial began. Bundy wavered a jury because of the negativity publicity. Bundy was found guilty by Judge Hanson Jr. in June with a sentence of 1 to, five, 1 to 15 years in Utah State Prison. In October, Bundy would go missing from his cell and was later found in the bushes by the guards with what they called an escape kit. So he was put into solitary confinement. Later in October, Colorado charged Bunny for Campbell's murder. At first he fought it but then wavered extradition proceedings and was moved to Aspen in January 77. In June of 77, Bundy was moved to Garfield County Jail to Picton County Courthouse for a preliminary hearing on Campbell's murder. Ever the egotistical, Bundy decided to be his own attorney. Now this could have been a smart play because being his own attorney meant he didn't have to wear handcuffs or leg shackles while in court. So during a break, Bundy went to the courthouse library for research. The guard stood just inside the door and watched Bundy walk past bookcase after bookcase until he was out of view. By the time the guard who got to where Bundy had vanished, Bundy was out the window. He had jumped out, landing on his ankle, causing an injury, but he kept on going. He took off a layer of clothing to appear different walked through Aspen and began to hike up the mountains to avoid the roadblocks. While hiking, he found a cabin. He broke into it, gathered food, clothes and found a weapon. After a night at the cabin, he left to get to the next town, but he ended up getting lost in the forest. He rambled about confused for two days on the mountain, walking past trails that would have got him back on track. June 10th, he stumbled upon a camping trailer. Again, he broke in, taking food and this time a coat. He began walking again, but had changed direction. Now maybe being sleep deprived, he was confused, who knows, but it was lucky for him because he managed to avoid more roadblocks and search parties. Three days on, he managed to steal a car, but cold with sleep deprivation and pain from the ankle, he actually ended up driving back into Aspen. He was driving erratically and soon the police noticed and pulled him over. The great escape of Ted Bundy lasted all of six days. So back to jail went Bundy. 
but he wasn't going to stay, which is ironic because if he had just stayed and waited, the case would have been acquitted because it was so weak. He would have just had to do 18 months for kidnapping of Daroch. But Bundy knew best and he created a new escape plan. From his lawyer position, he was able to get floor plans of the jail. From inmates, he got hacksaws. And for the next six months, when people came to visit him, including his love interest Boone, he was able to gather loose change from them, which would amount to $500. During shower time, Bundy would opt to exercise, which meant he lost £135 in total. This was to facilitate a squeeze through a gap between the steel bars and the ceiling. This would have him then get into a small, small crawl space above. For months he would do test runs, exploring and knowing each and every nook and cranny. While doing these tests, inmates who were informants reported strange noises coming from the ceilings, but these reports were never looked into. Towards the end of 77 his trial was fast approaching, and in a little place like Aspen it was becoming a huge deal. Because of this, Bundy filed to change the venue to Denver. On December 23rd it was changed but to Colorado Springs, not Denver. You see, in Colorado Springs, it was well known not to be kind to those who are suspected of murder. Now, December 30, party season, and jail staff was scarce, to say the least. Bundy thought this would be the best chance he would have to escape. He set up books underneath his blanket to look like he was sleeping, and climbed into the crawl space. Working his way through the ceiling, he was able to knock through into the chief jailer's apartment, who was also out for the festive times. Finding clothes, Bundy changed and just strolled right out the front door. Outside he stole a car, but it was broke it would break break down before Interstate 70. He hitched the Isles of Vale, got on a bus to Denver, boarded an early flight to Chicago. By the time he was discovered gone, he was already in the Windy City with a 17-hour head start on them. We are about to hit warp speed of bat poop crazy right now. So in Chicago he got a train to Ann Arbor, where it's known he stayed at a, tra a tavern on the 2nd of January. After five days he stole another car and drove south to Atlanta. He then got a bus to Tallahassee, Florida, arriving on January 8th. He rested for a night at the Holiday Inn Hotel under a fake name and then rented a room at a boarding house as Chris Hagen. Speaking about it later, Bundy claimed he really, really did try to have a quiet life with no crime, even trying to get a job. But the job he applied for required ID, so there was a problem. He needed the money to live, so his sticky hands went into the overdrive, stealing credit cards left, right and centre. A week later, January 15th, Bundy entered the Chi Omega sorority of Florida State University. He got in through the back door because of a faulty lock. Horrific attacks would be done within the next 15 minutes. Yes, 15 minutes. At 2.45 a.m., Bundy battered Margaret Bowman with a log as she slept. He then strangled her. Next, he went into the room with Lisa Levy. He battered her and strangled her too, just like Margaret, but he also bit and sexually assaulted Lisa. Next room he attacked was Kathy Kleiner, breaking her jaw and cutting her. Karen Chandler was next. He knocked her out, broke her jaw, smashed her teeth, and broke her fingers. Chandler and Kleiner would survive, later saying headlights hit the room from a passing car, which scared off Bundy. 
Bundy ran out the way he came in, just missing Nathan Neary. When detectives came, they recorded the four attacks took just 15 minutes. There was also 30 people inside the house within earshot who heard nada, nothing, zip. From the house, Bunny ran eight blocks and broke into a basement. Here he attacked student Cheryl Thomas, dislocating her shoulder, fracturing her jaw, fracturing her skull, but she still survived. Although she would have permanent deafness and her balance would be damaged forever, which would end her dancing career. After securing the scene, police found semen stain and a mask made from pantyhose on her bed. The mask had two hairs similar to Bundy's hair. February 8th, Bundy stole a fan and drove to Jacksonville. He parked up and seen 14-year-old Leslie Parmenter, who was the police chief's daughter. Bundy approached her claiming to be a firefighter named Richard Burton. Mid-flow into his charming speech, Leslie's older protective brother appeared and he squared up to Bundy. Bundy then ran off. Back as the van he went, he headed back to Lake City. Next morning, 12-year-old Kimberly Leach was in school at Lake City Junior High. She was called to homeroom to collect her purse. She was never seen again. An intense search was done for weeks, eventually finding her remains in a pig farrowing shed. On examination, it was found she was raped and her neck was slashed. February 12th, cash strapped, owing rent and feeling police pressure, Bundy stole the car again and fled. He was out driving three days later and was pulled over by Officer David Lee at about one o'clock in the morning near Alabama State Line. Doing a once and warrant check on the VW Beetle. What is with Bundy and Beatles? Anyway, it came up that it was stolen. Officer Lee had Bundy step out of the car and he was about to arrest him when Bundy kicked him. That's right, he kicked the officer and ran off. Officer Lee stumbled back but regained composure, firing two warning shots. This startled Bundy, allowing the officer to catch up and tackle Bundy. They fumbled about until Bundy was subdued. Back at the car, three IDs of female students were found inside, along with 21 stolen credit cards and randomly a TV. They also found four non-prescription pairs of glasses, plaid slacks, which were later revealed as part of his firefighter disguise. Taking him into jail, unaware who he actually had because Bundy had no idea on him, Officer Lee heard Bundy quietly remark, I wish he had killed me. June 79, the trial for the Chi Omega murders and assaults began in Miami. With all that happened, it's not surprising that the trial was a media circus. 250 reporters from five continents all came to report on this trial. It also was the first to be televised throughout the US. Bundy had not one, not two, but five court-appointed attorneys, but still chose to handle his own defense. He didn't listen to them. All that mattered to him was being in charge, which was just crazy. What's even more crazy was a pre-trial plea deal was offered. If Bundy pleaded guilty to killing Bowman and Leach, he would do 75 years. Prosecutors were all for this as their case was a sinking ship. Hard to believe now, but back then they had nothing concrete. It was all theories, eyewitnesses, so it was shaky at best. Bundy at first was all for it, thinking as a lawyer and seeing it as a godsend. He could avoid a death penalty and his thinking was to do it for a few years. 
let it settle, then file a post-conviction to secure an acquittal. He believed he would achieve this because of evidence that would become damage or loss, witnesses would die or move, and testimonies wouldn't be as confident as they had been made. But the very last minute, even seconds before signing this plea deal, Bundy outright refused. Which is just crazy. When asked later why, Bundy said it made him realise he was going to have to stand up in front of the whole world and say he was guilty. And he just couldn't do that. You see, admitting guilt to him was admitting wrong, and this evil sepulchre creature couldn't and wouldn't do such a thing. So the trial proceeded with Connie Hastings, a Chi Omega sorority member, giving a solid and important testimony, placing Bundy in the area of the Chi Omega house. Nita Neary also spoke about seeing him leaving and holding a wooden weapon. A mould of his teeth was taken and the bite impressions matched those that were on Lisa Levy. The jury took just seven hours to agree on a verdict. On July 24, 1979, Bundy was found guilty of murder, three counts of attempted first degree murder and two counts of burglary. The death sentence was imposed on the murder convictions. Less than six months later, another trial began this time in Orlando for the abduction and murder of Kimberly Leach. Again, guilty verdict ran out thanks to the testimony for those who saw her leave with Bundy going towards the van. Evidence found in the van and on the body of fibres matching Bundy's jacket. Crazy constantly raised his head during the trial. One such moment happened when Bundy was questioning his love interest, Carl Boone. Boone was madly in love with Bundy and she even moved to Florida to be closer to him. She was testifying on his behalf, which she did at every trial, and Bundy was in the mid-question where I don't know where he asked her to marry him. You see, Bundy was law taught and had a fair idea of the system. He also would research and found an obscure Florida law allowing marriage through a declaration in court. Using this, he asked, she accepted, and just like that, right there, right then, they were legally married. A third death sentence was handed down and this third death sentence would eventually be carried out nine years later. October 1981, Boone had a daughter and named Bundy as the father. Why does this matter? Well, Bundy was in Railford prison where conjugal visits were not to happen. So how was, far, how was Bundy the father? It came to light that the guards were being bribed for some time and inmates would gather off money and bribe the guards to allow cosy time with female visitors there's the craziness still rising its head. Bundy began to fight with appeals being filed. Bundy wanted time and delaying was his method. He did interviews with Stephen Machard and Hugh Ainsworth. In these interviews, he spoke in the third person, separating himself from the murders so he himself wasn't confessing. He spoke about his burglary habits, confirming his on-off lover's Liz Clover's theory that he stole everything he owned. He wanted full possession over everything he stole. He got such satisfaction wanting something and going out and taking it. This want and need for possession would be the core of his assaults and murders. Then the sexual assault would give him the sense of total possession over the victims. The reason he killed at first was to remove the chance of being caught, but later it became an adventure and an achievement. Special Agent Hagemeyer from the FBI Behavioural Analyst Unit, or BAU, was very interested in Bundy. The BAU was only set up in 85, so to get an insight into someone like Bundy would help greatly. 
From Bundy, he learned that he murdered not for crime or lust or violence, he did it for possession of his victims, to be part of him and them forever. He learned how the killing grounds were sacred to the killer and most, if not all, killers would return thereafter to relive the moments. Bundy spoke about his amateur beginnings to becoming a pro by Linda Healy's murder in 74. This to Hagemeyer suggested the earlier killings were done by Bundy. So in July 84, the Railford guards did a spot check on Bundy's cell. They found a hacksaw blade which prompted a deeper cell inspection and they found the bars of the windows cut through the top and bottom. The bars were held in place with a homemade soap based glue to appear normal. With escape plan concerns, they moved Bundy to a different cell. Months later, again another spot check, this time would find a mirror which wasn't supposed to be there so again he was moved. After this, Bundy was charged with disciplinary for chit-chatting with another inmate, John Hinchley Jr. You know him? He was the guy who attempted the assassination of US President Reagan. So you know they weren't exchanging workout routines. From, their bun from there, Bundy contacted Detective Keppel, who was hunting the Green River Killer. Bundy felt, being an expert on all things serial killer, that he could help. Again, buying time, as he wasn't much help with the Green River Killer, who remained free for another 17 years. Early 86, an execution date was set for March 4th, but the Supreme Court quickly issued the stay. Next date was July 2nd. Bundy began to confess and convince detectives of crimes he committed. He spoke about Taylor Martin and Isiqua and others he revisited over and over again after the killings. He spoke about staying with the bodies, reliving the moment, even reenacting and performing acts until he couldn't. He described driving hours to revisit and staying overnight with some. He'd apply makeup to them to appear more alive and even washed their hair. He decapitated about 12 and even kept some heads in his apartment for a while. The hours ticked down on July 2nd. The 11th Circuit Court of Appeals called in a stay with regards to Bundy's mental state and the instructions given by the judge to the jury, all of which were never resolved. 18th of November was the next date, but again on the 17th it called the stay. By the end of 88, courts denied any motion to review. Enough was enough and a firm and would-be final date of January 24th, 1989 was set. Appeals quashed and Bunny gets ropes of debt, he wanted more time, so he spoke apparently honestly with investigators. He confessed to all eight homicides in Washington and Oregon. He mentioned three others that were unknown in Washington and two others unknown in Oregon, but he never gave details or identities. He referenced burning Donna Mason's head in Liz Clover's fireplace. And as he spoke and described the horrific details, the detectives noticed him reliving it over and over, appearing consumed with the murders at all times. He confessed to Idaho, Utah and Colorado homicides along with unknown ones. Time ticked on and on and no stays were given on her or coming from the horizon. His supporters began to lobby. Clemency was their aim. Diana Weiner, an attorney and a new item in Bundy's world, approached the victims' families of Colorado and Utah to ask them, yes, asked them to sign a petition to delay Bundy's execution and in return he'd give more information regarding the victims. 
They refused outright. They all believed the victims were dead and that Bundy had done it. They didn't need a confession. Florida Governor Bob Martins had enough. He had enough of the stays, he had enough of the delay tactics, enough of the manipulation and insisted no more delays were to be had. So Boone, now Bundy's wife, always stood by him, arguing his innocence, testifying on his behalf, all of it. But when Bundy started to plead guilty, she felt betrayed and lied to. She also found out about his new fling with the attorney, so it added extra heartbreak to her. She and the daughter packed up and moved to Washington, cutting off all contact with Bundy. Even on his execution day, she would not accept his call. January 24, 1989, Bundy was placed in the execution chair early that morning. Strapped in and electrocuted, he was dead by 7.16am. There was a crowd outside of family and friends of the victims. Cheers erupted at the death announcement. They sang, they danced and they set off fireworks. As the white horse left carrying Bundy, cheers rang out again. The monster was finally slain. Bundy always laid blame with someone or something else. Although he confessed to 30 murders, he never had remorse or took responsibility for any of them. He deflected blame to his grandfather, his father, the childhood lie about his parents. He blamed alcohol, media, police, porn, and even the victims themselves. He was shocked people noticed his victims missing because to him, America was so huge so how could they, he couldn't understand how one less person would be noticed. He also was shocked that people noticed him because to him, people just didn't see each other. Confessing to 30 was one thing, but there is many other murders believed Bundy had committed, well in excess of 100. In 2011, Bundy's DNA profile was got from a vial of his blood. It's now added to the FBI database for reference to other unsolved murder cases in case other remains are ever found. Thanks for listening. Next time I'll talk about the peaceful protester Mahatma Gandhi. This was the good, the bad and the pure evil. Until next time.